Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. To my great shame, I sort of succumbed to the narcissism and the self-involvement that comes along with that, you know, where you, where for a while, I'm ashamed to say, I expected people to sort of know who I was and to treat me differently. And that it's just not a, it's not a healthy way to live. I mean, we look at our culture and there's so many public figures who are sort of destroyed by being public figures. You know, it's, it's very, I mean, it's not just confusing it sometimes it brings out the worst parts of our personalities so i am glad that i personally have sort of gone past that we're like you know like i guess i'm still a public figure but it's not necessarily how i think of myself on a day-to-day basis yeah yeah you mean you're not passing by the mirror going hey legend hey famous guy hey superstar <laughs> No, I walk by the mirror and I'm like, who invited the old guy into my house? (laughs) This podcast exists because I love talking to people and I love going deep. The purpose is to plant seeds of inspiration. We enter a space of vulnerability and relatability. And what you realize is that we are so much more alike than we are different. To quote Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home and the show It's just one step. I'm Danica Patrick, and I'm pretty intense. You're going to hear at the very beginning of this episode, um, but I'm going to start it off with the same kind of intro, the legend, Moby. Um, We started off by, of course, talking about legend and what that really means in his perspective, but he truly is. And really what comes through in, in, in all of this, and probably if you've paid attention to any of his Uh, any of the times that he's done interviews or talked, but in his music, what you felt is his authenticity, his vulnerability, the real rawness of who he is coming through his music and his art. So we talked about how that translates into other aspects of his life. It was just a really, really nice conversation. I feel like everyone's going to come away from this episode feeling like he's a friend. There's just a level of relatability that he brings to uh, to anyone that is uh, resonates, and I think uh, I think you're all going to feel that. Um, so please uh, have a good time relating to Moby today. Thanks so much for doing this. This is so cool. I'm like such a big fan, and you're just a legend, my friend. Uh, I mean, legend to me, that just means essentially like the moment someone's called a legend, it just means that they're old. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, so, I think people from, can do things that are case, legendary. In my case, it actually does work because I am actually old. Um, maybe it's different in the world of sports because I feel like people become legendary in sports when they're really young. You know, but like, like for example, in the world of music, etc. Like, the first time I was called "quote a legend," and granted, it has not happened that often, but the first time 
I sort of realized like, oh, that's synonymous with you're a middle-aged guy who's on the verge of actually just being old. I mean, I get what you're saying. I think like maybe you're tapping into you have I had a race or there was a game or something like that. And there's like a legendary moment of like that catch or that win. Um, but you do that with songs. Like you do that with an album. You do that with a song. Like that's, that's a legendary moment. You've had them. Well, I thank you very much. I, ho I hope that you are correct. I feel like it would be incredibly immodest for me to completely agree with you. So I'll just, I'll just, I, I, I hope, I hope that what you're saying is right, but I feel like I don't have the objectivity to mm -hmm. agree with you. Also, my mom I'm raised humble. me to be, to at least pretend to be humble. So I'll just, I'll just happily say thank you. Mm, you know, it's actually an interesting concept. I've been thinking about this um, <clears throat> a little bit more lately, whether it's, um, becoming famous or um, uh, something like that. Like you can't, because like, people say to me sometimes, they'll be like, oh, aren't you famous? And I'm like, I don't, I think it, I don't, I don't think it works like that. Like I'm not, I don't just become famous or I'm not famous. I'm only famous if you think I'm famous. So it's like maybe legend is similar in a sense that you don't sign up. You can't go sign up to be a legend. Like you can become a singer. You can become a race car driver. You can't become famous or you can't become a legend that has to be in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, ab absolutely. I'm sure that, you know, anybody who's a public figure has had that experience of in one set of circumstances, you know, you're incredibly, you know, you, you go, you walk into one room or a bar or a restaurant and everybody in that bar and restaurant or party knows who you are. And then you walk next door and no one knows who you are. And it's actually like the first few times that happens, it can be quite humbling, but it's really healthy just to remember, like the majority of the people on the planet kind of largely have no idea who we are, <laughs> which is which is exactly how it should be. Right. Um, you know, I think like because I when I, I don't know what your experience is like but when I first started becoming a public figure. To my great shame, I sort of succumbed to the narcissism and the self-involvement that comes along with that, you know, where you, where for a while, I'm ashamed to say, I expected people to sort of know who I was and to treat me differently. And that it's just not a, it's not a healthy way to live. I mean, we look at our culture and there's so many public figures who are sort of destroyed by being public figures. You know, it's, it's very, I mean, it's not just, confusing it sometimes it brings out the worst parts of our personality so i am glad that i personally have sort of gone past that we're like you know like i guess i'm still a public figure but it's not necessarily how i think of myself on a day-to-day -day basis yeah yeah you mean you're not passing by the mirror going hey legend hey famous guy hey superstar <laughs> No, I walk by the mirror and I'm like, who invited the old guy into my house? <laughs> Don't worry. As we all age, we're all thinking they're like, whoa, where'd that wrinkle come from? I will tell you that I see you as a legend. You can only speak from your experience, but what was it that led you down that sort of 
path where you're like, you expected people to know who you are. You expected certain things. Have you realized what it was or was it more a matter of just sort of alchemizing that and processing and, 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 and shifting it? Well, I mean, when I first started making music, I never expected to have a career as a musician. You know, when I was, you know, in my teens and junior high school and high school, I played in little punk rock bands and like a good night for us was playing to 10 people, playing to 15 people. You know, the first single I ever released with my punk rock band in Connecticut, we sold a hundred copies and we thought we thought that was pretty great. That meant a hundred people had gone out of their way to buy our record. And I, I was like, wow, we're, this is, this is the pinnacle. Like it's, it's not going to get any better than this. So when in the nineties, when I started having more sort of broader success, it was so unexpected and it just, it played to all of my, and maybe this is very, very obvious, but it played to all of my insecurities. It played to my, my feel, my lack of self-worth, my feelings of inadequacy. And somehow I felt that, you know, if people were nice to me, you know, if people wanted to date me, if people invited me to their parties, it sort of gave me this external sort of validation. And as is often the case, I became way too attached to it, you know, because, you know, I had grown up, you know, my mom and I were on food stamps and welfare. I was, you know, a little insecure kid growing up. And then suddenly when you're on the receiving end of attention, mm -hmm. you know, especially glamorous attention, mm -hmm. it can be really corrupting, you know, it's because it's so, it's so attractive. Mm. You know, I feel like <clears throat> for myself and just the things that I've gone through in life and especially over the last year, like I've realized just how much like our parents and childhood has, I mean, it's, it's really the root of everything. There's, it's like the most complicated giant box that lives underground in the subconscious mm -hmm. and just wreaks havoc through patterns until you recognize it. Yeah, and it's hard because the patterns, you know, who we are and who we were, how we were formed as children, you know, we're rarely are we capable of even recognizing those patterns because they're so familiar. And it's only, you know, like we become adults and we start almost like encountering the consequences of those patterns, you know, whether it's in relationships, whether it's with addiction, whether it's with friends, what have you. And then suddenly, you know, whether it's through therapy, whether it's through self-help, sobriety, what have you, you know, like hopefully we learn enough about ourselves to sort of at least identify those old patterns mm. and work to move past them insofar as we can, you know, it's certainly obviously much easier said than done. <laughs> If it was easy, we would all be healed and it would be one quick moment and we'd be like, oh, yes. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, uh, I forgive you, mom. I forgive you, dad. <laughs> but it's mm -hmm. not it's not that easy because like you said, they're just like they're patterns. They're they're ingrained in us and they're <clears throat> they're almost like invisible because there's such patterns. And um, 
yeah. I mean, life is just such a journey. I mean, such a, such a complicated journey. I, I, it's not and easy. One thing I've, one thing I've been sort of hopefully learning lately, and I don't know why this is the most self-evident thing I could ever say is realizing that it's a complicated journey for everyone. You know, because when I was growing up, I thought like I was the only confused person. I was the only scared person. I was the only insecure person. You know, I was the only person who really was filled with doubts. And then time passes and you realize, oh, everybody is. You know, it's just unfortunately, we live in a culture where most of us are really good at pretending otherwise. You know, people pretending they're smarter than they actually are, cooler than they actually are. Um, sexier than they actually are. Like, so it is sort of nice remembering that every human being on the planet, regardless of, you know, how they were born, where they were born, like everybody has their own experience of the human condition. And it's, it's confusing to everybody. Like, was there a moment where you realized that, that you like finally like freed yourself from this self-inflicted burden that you're alone? Um, Oddly, I did. I was driving and it it came just a few years ago. Hmm. You know, the, the actual sort of like the physical reala- realization of this. Hmm. I was driving from Los Angeles down to Palm Springs. Um, I was playing at Coachella and I was driving on the 10 and I'm sure you've spent some time on the 10, you know, and the 10 between Los Angeles and Palm Springs is gross. Like it's just, especially like when it's hot and there's traffic, like it's just, it's awful. And I was, you know, sitting in my car, you know, feeling sorry for myself because the traffic was terrible. And I was, you know, like everything outside was ugly and brown. And then I looked around at everybody else in traffic and I had this realization. I was like, oh, everyone hates this. Like, it's not just me. In fact, most people probably hate it way more than I do. Cause you know, like I was leaving my nice home to go play at a festival and I was going to stand on stage in front of 40 or 50,000 people. Like that's, I'm not looking, it's clearly like my circumstances were different than most other people's and realizing like, okay, if this is unpleasant for me, like I'm in my nice car, the air conditioning is going, I'm listening to music and I am unhappy. Just think how much less happy the people around me are. And it gave me this sense of just very simple, you know, and I hope this doesn't sound insincere, but really simple compassion, just this realization like these, you know, everybody is struggling. I certainly can't take my problems too seriously, you know, especially when people are dealing with problems that are so much worse and more serious than mine. That's Beautiful perspective. What gave you, I mean, you are like a, you are a very present, self-aware, I mean, and vulnerable, like vulnerable is what comes through and everything, you know, watching you and even in your music, I don't even know what to call your genre. Like, I don't even know, like, it's hard to put a thumb on that exactly what it is. And I think that that's a really special gift um, and a really special talent that an artist has to be able to do that. Because to me, it tells me that it's flowing through you and it's not, um, you're not trying to fit in any kind of a box. And I don't get the feeling like in your life, you um, 
you know, you've you've always kind of had a, an ability to march to the beat of your own drum. Sorry for the silly pun, but um, mm-hmm. and but that vulnerability, like it's it's only in being vulnerable and honest that you can create music that you uh, is not fitting into a genre or to say something like you've said where it's like, I realized I wasn't the greatest singer, so I needed to learn how to do other things. And um, I, I just is this something that you taught yourself or is this just who you are? How did you get to that point? I think it's learning from other people. Mm. And, you know, like, for example, when I was growing up, as we were sort of talking about earlier, like, you know, I grew up poor, I grew up insecure, and I grew up, as is true for most people, looking for something that gave me a sense of comfort and connection. And really, I found found that through books. I found that through art, but I mainly found that through music. Hmm. And I found, you know, a lot of music that was absolutely not vulnerable. And I loved it, you know, but I, it was the vulnerable music, you know, it was Neil Young or Joy Division or uh, James Taylor, or, you know, like the people who were really who are, who are willing to be vulnerable, their music was what affected me the most. And so then I thought, okay, if I'm profoundly responding to other people's vulnerability, the best I can do is to at least try to be vulnerable myself. Or when I say vulnerable slash honest, you know, because as I mean, there's a lot of art in the world that's completely dishonest and not vulnerable. And some of it's great, you know, like whether it's a really fun hip hop song or a fun punk rock song or whatever, like, you know, there's definitely a place for like dishonest, not vulnerable music, but it's the really tender, vulnerable, honest music that, that I connect with and that I try to sort of incorporate into the music that I make. Yeah. It comes through and that's why you're still, that's why you keep going. That's why your music made you a legend. That's why. And I I think that it's so it's something I've been considering too. And this comes in the form of music. It comes in the form of communication. Um, Even just somebody being with you um, or looking at you, but there's like a frequency that comes through. And so I've wondered if there, for me, I feel like there's, a frequent there's there's a message and then there's a frequency so there's like the words that come out and the way that it's presented and then there's like an inherent frequency with it that we don't really we're not aware of but it's coming through and that's the stuff that that's what you're talking about the vulnerability is a frequency yeah i guess I mean, it's all the information that it we're affected by, but we might not be obviously aware of. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's so much information in the world that if we were capable of even responding to 50% of it, we'd lose our minds. <laughs> totally. You know, like, I mean, it's just like, they're just, <laughs> you think of even like, and I don't want to get too nerdy, but like the, like the spectrum of light. Oh, like, yeah. What we see as the visual spectrum of light is, I think, around 1% of the spectrum of light. Yeah. And so expand that. And that's the same thing with sound. It's the same thing with just all the data that's flowing around us. 
so I think that when we communicate, when we, you know, like, so we're, we're almost like using what you call like, you know, that frequency, mm-hmm. you know, we're using all this information, even if we're not aware of it, you know, like, and I guess that's where intuition, instinct, chemistry, all these things come from is sort of like the un the unseen, largely unacknowledged aspects of expression and communication. Mm. How does that trickle down into the rest of your life? Vulnerability. Uh, it's, it? it's interesting. Yeah. That, that's the really interesting. That's one of the most challenging things, I think, and this is true for almost anybody, is mm-hmm. like, sure, I can be vulnerable through the music that I make. I can be vulnerable in interviews, I can be vulnerable in books, I can be vulnerable in social media posts. But the hardest thing is being vulnerable in the presence of an actual other human being. Yeah. And that, you know, like, I'd say that's borderline impossible, especially for like, you know, I think men in general are a lot less accomplished at being vulnerable in the presence of other people, you know, and it's, so like, yeah, I can write songs where I bear my soul, but bearing my soul in the presence of one person, you know, a friend, a family member, someone I'm dating, like that's the, that's the hardest part. I'm curious what you, how you feel about it, but it feels like we're entering into a phase where um, the fact that there's even that awareness that it's harder for men and it, it I think it is. I think there's a primal reason. I think that there's um, a cultural reason. Uh, I think that there's uh, the masculinity in general is, um, you know, is its own thing. And so, but I feel like we're in a phase now where, where men are aware of it. And that is the first step to, it's kind of like saying like, hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm a whatever. Do you feel that? Do you feel like an opening now? Like that, you know, maybe just maybe you could sit in front of a, a, some, someone, a friend or a partner or whatever, and sort of like cry or have a moment. I hope so. Um, I mean, it definitely, like if we, if we take a step back, it certainly seems like it's moving in that direction. Um, and I think part of it is also recognizing, you know, the old classic masculinity is so ridiculous you know when we see like tough guys taking themselves seriously it's like yeah you don't seem tough you just seem it seems silly (laughs) you know and it just it it just doesn't make sense anymore you know maybe it made sense thousands of years ago when you're like fighting bears to protect your family and be able to like sleep in your cave but now like like an example of like tough guys being ridiculous is like two macho guys getting in a fight over a parking space (laughs) you know like people are willing to like punch each other in the face for a parking space (laughs) or like some guy who's like super angry because his sports team didn't win it's like the sports team's not even in the town where you live. There's no people on the sports team you've ever met. That They're all making millions of dollars whether, you, whether they win or lose. Why is this guy upset? Yeah. You know, and I'm not criticizing sports. Sports are great. I'm just saying like these expressions of traditional macho masculinity are just, they're just kind of ridiculous. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I love giving my mentally giving myself this perspective of, you know, cause I can fall into the trap of trying to be perfect or trying to uh, do certain things and fitting inside of my own mental box. And, but usually in a line alignment with sort of perfectionism or uh, something in the, in that realm. And when I do that, I don't give anyone else permission to not be perfect. Right. So it's in the vulnerability, which you do in so many aspects, you give permission to people to, make unique music. You give permission to people to be honest about their childhood. You give, you know, in, in our flaws, we actually were so much more relatable because like you said, 15 minutes ago, everybody's going through crap. And so it's in our vulnerability that we're now relatable, but we also then give the other person permission to show us them. Yeah. Yeah. Without question. And the perfectionism you're talking about, um, most of my friends are women, and I see so many women, it's heartbreaking like how crippled they are by the pursuit of perfectionism. Right. You know, and this this idea that they can only present themselves as the most perfectly put together version of who they are. You know, if they're going to write a song, it has to be perfect. If they're going to you know, do anything in public, it has to be perfect. And I'm like, yeah, you be good. You know, like it's, it's good to, you know, like if you're going to make a song, make a good song, but like the, the humanity of expression and connection is so much more interesting than perfection. You know, I mean, I'm sure we've, we've all had that experience where like, maybe you go on a date and like, you're with someone who has like made this huge effort to be perfect and there's nothing to relate to, you know, like, and you almost, you almost want to pull them aside and say like, just like, who are you really? Like, like, like what makes you cry? What are your insecurities? What do you look like with no makeup? What do you, you know, like, just like, I almost feel like that would be the perfect first date is like two people come together at their worst, not their worst, their meanest, but like looking their worst, you know, maybe don't even bathe for a couple of days beforehand <laughs> and like see the connection you have there as opposed to like two perfectly put together people going to an elegant place and having an elegant night. Like there's, that's fun, but there's no honesty there. Totally. Well, yeah, there's no, the like, so going back to like my mindset of this sort of like intention or frequency or energy, like, there's no, tr- there's no, it's not real. Mm-hmm. It's in the head and not in the body. And that's something for me that I have worked on myself is pulling information from the head down into the body and embodying it. And so I'm curious, cause you said like a song and perfection. And then I think, are there times where you've recorded and, you know, yes, there's like a perfect way to, and I, again, I don't record music, but you know, there's like executing something with perfection and then there's executing something with perfect vulnerability which is maybe the voice crackles a little or maybe something but there's like something about it it's kind of like a picture maybe where you see somebody and they're like smiling and then you see them like turn and like catch a moment like the caught moment has so much more energy than the posed moment even though they're both smiling pictures so similarly with a song it's like you can you can sing it beautifully 
or you can sing it with like a little bit of like that, the, the, the caught moment of like the emotion of it. And have you chosen or has that happened to you where you record something and you're like, I don't know, there's just something about that one. I know it's not perfect, but let's, that's the, that's the, that's the one we're putting in the song. Well, exactly what you're describing happened because I work with quite a lot of singers and what you're describing used to happen a lot where like, you know, I would be working with a singer, they would do a rough run through of a song and it'd be great. And then we'd do the official run through and it wouldn't be nearly as interesting. And so lately, well, for the last like maybe even 10 years, what I do is when I work with a singer, I basically record all of their rough takes and I tell them, I'm like, okay, we just, I just need to get like microphone levels. Let's just run through it a couple times. And like when we're done and I'll say to them like, okay, like I just want to run through it a few times so you can get familiar with it. And then I'll say to them, and then we'll do, you know, the official version, keeping in mind, I'm only recording them doing the unofficial versions because I know those are going to be the good ones. And, and I've actually had singers get mad at me because when I'm done recording the unofficial versions, I'll say to them like, okay, I, we're done. And they'll, they'll be taken aback. They'll be like, but, but what about the perfect version? And I'm like, no, this is great. We're fine. And I've had some people actually get very mad at me because I have denied them the ability to do something technically perfect. Whereas what I want is emotionally honest. That's so cool. So it's a, it's a trick that I do now that I've given it away. I'm no singer will ever work with me again. <laughs> you're only going to get the right singers. If someone hears it and they don't want what you're just saying, that's actually almost better news, right? To get more raw, to get, I, you want someone to come into the studio. That's like ready to bear it, right? Ready to just like lay it out there. Otherwise, yeah. you know, it's not quite or, or the singers who are so good. I mean, there are these people who are so accomplished and so good that their perfectionism involves vulnerability. Mm. You know, Bo Bono would be an example of that. Like, there's a reason why he's one of the most successful singers of all time is because he's so good. He can actually achieve perfection and vulnerability at the same time. Mm. What would you, why, why do you think that is? I think that he's coming from a, a very, like a place where he loves what he's doing. He loves expressing himself. And I say this because we've been friends for quite a while, but he also technically just has that rare voice that is technically perfect, mm. you know? And like, I guess it's kind of like, imagine like a phenomenal, like a martial arts expert who's been doing it forever, who's the best martial arts person in the world, they're going to be a lot more comfortable introducing mistakes into what they're doing because they have nothing to prove. Like they're so good at it, you know, they can mess around a little bit and try out imperfect things mm. because they know that they're just so good at what they're doing. So then how does this play into the new album reprise where you took, all the old songs and, you know, you've, you know, reframed them in new ways, which it's so, it sounds so cool. Um, well, part of it is most of the music I've made in my life, I've made just by myself in my studio with a bunch of equipment and making this album 
it was the complete opposite of doing that, where like it involved working with orchestras, with tons of different singers, with gospel choirs, um, recording people in New York, recording people in LA, recording people in Hungary, recording people in the UK, like this, as opposed to just like, usually it's just me by myself, this one little guy in the studio. This was this global process involving quite literally hundreds of people. Mm. And especially working with so many vocalists and so many acoustic musicians, you know, cellists, violinists, pianists, harpists, brass people, like it's all human. Like this is without question, by definition, the least electronic record I've ever made. There's no, there are no electronic elements on the record. Oh, there's one bass line that actually played with a synthesizer. But apart from that, it's all humans making music. And I think part of what made me want to do this is that vulnerability, you know, is like, is the imperfection, because I love electronic music, but sometimes electronic music can be a little too perfect. Whereas redoing all of these songs with humans was by definition an imperfect process. Hmm. Um, and in some cases, like one of my favorite performances on the record is from Chris Christofferson. Um, Cause he's, I mean, we met a while ago and he's this wonderful human being, but he's, he's lived a life, you know, like he's quite a bit older. He's had some health issues. And if you listen to his vocal performance, like the vulnerability in it will make you weep. Like, and he's so comfortable with it. Like th there's a level of sort of vulnerable genius in his vocals. Like I would say if someone's going to listen to the out, like if you're only going to listen to one thing from the album, listen to Chris Christopherson's performance. Mm -hmm. He's singing with Mark Lanigan and Mark Lanigan has a phenomenal voice and their voices go really well together. But Chris Christopherson, and the vulnerability in his performance is just phenomenal. Mm. Were you able to be with these, with all these different people? Or I mean, you know, recording this album, it was during 2020, right? We recorded most of it before the pandemic kicked in, but then a bunch of people had to be recorded after. And of course that sometimes means them recording in their garage with a microphone or, you know, coming to my studio. But I never actually, there are a couple singers I've recorded who I've never actually met, even though they were at my studio because we set up a microphone 50 feet away from the control room. And so I sort of like the hoops wave to them, but like I've never actually shaken their hand or talked to them. What was that like? It's it's a very strange process. You know, like um, the only thing I can think of is like maybe it's like like dancing with someone where you never actually see them or touch them. It's a, it's it was disconcerting. Just imagination. I mean, we have great imaginations. <laughs> the dance is the best dance ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, like having someone, well, it's tricky because over, again, over years and years and years, decades of working with singers, as I mentioned earlier, I've developed some ways of, I mean, I guess it's the way a director would work with an actor, whereas like you work with a singer, they're doing something revealing and vulnerable and you have to figure out how to manage them make them comfortable yeah. 
and both reassure them and challenge them. Yeah. And it's hard to do that when you can't actually talk to them in person. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's this, I mean, such an interesting time. Did you learn a new technique? I want to say that, yes, I did. But the sad truth is, no, I just, I mean, the only technique was maybe to get people to do things a few more times than they normally would. So I could go back and edit later. But yeah, I'm sad to say I did not learn anything new in terms of recording music during the pandemic. Like, and I really wish I had something like unique and insightful to offer, but. That's honest. That That's, that's great. Yeah. I, I, I feel mo I mean, there's obviously so many people that s sort of struggled and suffered and, you know, then there's the, you know, physical, you know, there's, there's losses on the grand scale, but music like I was just my friend just yesterday was like hey what's going on I live in Arizona I live in Scottsdale and she was like asking for fun things to do and so I said you know hiking's really good right now and then I said but it sucks that there's no concerts like it really sucks it's a huge loss that there aren't concerts well I was reading something recently that you know the last global pandemic was in 1918 Right. Spanish, you know, right? Yeah. And a lot of, I guess, historians or anthropologists think that the Roaring Twenties was actually a response to that pandemic. You know, that like, basically in 1917, 1918, 1919, 1920, apparently like the world was even more shut down than it is now. Really? Well, because just think of it like they didn't have phones. They didn't have... Yeah. You know, like everything, I mean, all jobs were in-person jobs back then. So like when that pandemic waned, apparently people just went crazy. And that's where the Roaring Twenties came from. So I heard someone saying like, get ready because it's about to happen again. You know, like once this pandemic abates or ends, I feel like people are just going to rush to concert venues, to nightclubs, to bars, to restaurants, to anything, you know, like, I mean, I'm old and kind of misanthropic and I like being by myself. So I don't know if I'll be rushing. <laughs> you're and totally, you're going to be playing. You're going to be doing it. You're going to be entertaining us. You're going to uh, reprise number two. Yeah. One of my only issues, I don't really like, I love playing live music, but I really don't like touring. Mm-hmm. Because um, I guess I just, I did it for too many years um, and it just got too repetitive. So now like most of the performing I do, well, pre-pandemic was, you know, at charity fundraisers, friends parties. Like I'd much rather walk down the street with an acoustic guitar and play some songs in someone's backyard than go on tour for six months. I have I'm a nice walking, backyard. Walking, walking from LA to Scottsdale that would be a little of a bit of a chat, like crossing the desert with my acoustic guitar. I feel like that would be a good, there's a good movie in that. We can meet at Coachella for a little tiny concert. Yeah. Um, Scottsdale, is that in Arizona? Is that more towards the North or the South? It's, it's really right where Phoenix is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is there, cause I still remember, and this has, nothing to do with almost anything we're talking about but the first tour i ever did 
we had two days off after a show in Phoenix. And so a bunch of friends and I rented a car and drove to the Grand Canyon because we'd never been to the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the most remarkable experiences. We left Phoenix and it was, this was, it was in February. We left Phoenix and it was like 68 degrees. And an hour later, I think we went, we drove over this thing called Mount Moriah. Mm-hmm. Is that a real thing? Or am I miss? Well, you probably drove up to Flagstaff. We, we eventually got to Flagstaff, but I just remember like leaving Phoenix, going up a mountain, and all of a sudden there's 10 feet of snow everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens in Arizona is everybody, a lot of times people get a house there for the summer, in the summer, have an extra house because it's 120 degrees in Scottsdale or Phoenix. And then they go to Flagstaff area where it's like 8,000 foot eight to 12,000. I mean, it goes up to 12,000 feet where uh, the top of the mountain is, um, but eight, about 8,000 feet and it's 20 plus degrees cooler. Yeah. So yeah, they I mean, I, snow too. <laughs> the West coast, cause I grew up in Connecticut and New York and what you're describing, that just doesn't exist anywhere on the East coast or the Midwest. And like when I first came out here, I'm, I live in LA now. Yeah. And I realized like, Oh, I live in LA it's 72 degrees, but if I drive for two hours, I can be in 10 feet of snow and it's 20 degrees. You know, that is just, it's still mind boggling to me. I mean, look, it seems like everyone's leaving California. Maybe you want to come to Arizona. The, the 120 degree summers might, might be a little hard to, to deal with. <laughs> well, I understand that's okay. Um, Turns out there's plenty of space everywhere for everyone. Um, I uh, So you have a doc coming out too. I feel like you've been super busy and um, I just love the name of it. Will be doc. That's fantastic. Why did you decide to do it? Why did you decide to do a doc? Well, it's interesting. I, I, well, I hope it's interesting. And it ties back to what we've been talking about. Because as you know, there are a lot of biopics, you know, documentaries about writers, artists, directors, musicians, public figures. And one of the things I think I've learned over time is, you know, that, and we, and I apologize for repeating myself, but that the human condition can't be fixed with fame. It can't be fixed with money. It can't be fixed with possessions. And so the documentary is largely... I think the goal was to make something unique and idiosyncratic that looks at that issue, you know, like using me as the the test subject almost like how I tried to fix, you know, so many, you know, psychological things with fame or money or, you know, validation or materialism and not surprisingly, it didn't work. So that's the idea behind the documentary to show that, you know, you just can't, you can't fix yourself with fame and stuff. Mm. Well, you said the more successful you got, essentially the more alone you felt, right? Or the, the worse you felt. Which I think, I mean, it's, it's funny because we're still surprised when people have that experience, Mm -hmm. but almost everybody has that experience. I mean, like just recently there was the Meghan Markle interview with Oprah, you know, she's a princess hanging out in Buckingham Palace and she's despondent and wants to kill herself. You know, like, and we're all so surprised by that, but like, 
But yeah, that happened to Diana too. And and it happened to Kurt Cobain and it happened to Ernest Hemingway and it happened to Avicii and it happened to Robin Williams and on and on and on. Like, like really, and I'm not complaining or looking for sympathy, but as you probably know firsthand, like fame should come with a warning label. Like mm. just beware, like you think fame is going to fix things, but boy, oh boy, it just doesn't. Mm. I love like, I think maybe it's Jim Care. I'm sure plenty of people kind of said this various sort of thing, but Jim Carrey, like, I wish everyone could get rich and famous so they could realize that it's not like, that's not the be all end all. Like that's not yeah. going to fix anything. I mean, they're nice, obviously. And I apologize again for stating the obvious, but they're nice aspects. It's nice to be sure. able to pay the rent. It's nice to be able to see the world. It's nice to have recognition for what you love to do, but boy, oh boy, whenever anyone expects fame and attention to fix their innermost issues. Uh, I mean, just history is just littered with people for whom, you know, the process of getting fame has cut their life expectancy by about 80%. You know, sometimes there are like reports on work safety. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll say like, well, the most dangerous job in the world is being an Alaskan fisherman. And in terms of life expectancy, the most dangerous job in the world is being a public figure. <laughs> so true. Like public figures have their shortest life expectancy. You know, think like Amy Winehouse, if she'd never become famous, she probably would have lived to be 70. Kurt Cobain, without fame, he'd probably still be alive. Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, John Lennon, on. And I mean, Avicii, poor Avicii died in his, tw killed himself in his 20s. You know, like, so... So what's the catch? Like, what's the, what is, what's, what's the safety net or what's the, what's the rope that's going to pull you back in? Because, you know, we're looking at it on a really magnified scale or a public scale of being famous and it kind of exacerbates things. But I think that there's a, there's a correlation between that and everything else. So there must be the rope that you can hang on to, to pull you out of the shit. And what is that? That's a great question. I, I have to think that maybe it's maybe it's different for different people. You know, like some people, like I'm grateful for the fact that I bottomed out completely. You know, like before I got sober 12 years ago, like I was suicidal, depressed, anxious, despondent. And I'm grateful for it because it forced me to do the work to try and get better. You know, if I had never bottomed out that way, I never would have been compelled to do the work. But for other people, they don't need to bottom out. You know, other people, it's just simply having a great, you know, being being smart, having a great education, um, not having an addictive personality, uh, having a good family structure, good friend structure. You know, like not everybody needs to get to the place that I got to of like this, you know, suicidal dark night of the soul. So. I guess different people are saved by different things. And very sadly, some people simply aren't saved. I think we all, I think we're all destined to go through our own semi dark night of the soul. I can attest to that, but um, your sharing of it gives us all permission. So um, I just want to say thank you. I just want to say thank you for your music, your art, your vulnerability, your relatability then. And, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. And um, to, to, to come full circle, it's been nice to talk to a legend. So thank you so much. 
Well, I still take issue with the legend aspect, but everything else, thank you very much. This has been wonderful. It's like, you know, obviously you and I both, we talk to a lot of people, um, but it's one wonderful thing about modern life is you can have a conversation with someone you've never actually spoken to and have a really, you know, personal, intimate, great conversation. So thank you for that. Yeah. You're so welcome. And thank you for, for doing it. It's been my honor. My pleasure. My pleasure. Congrats um, on everything. Oh, thanks. Well, I actually, what I'm most excited about is it, it rained last night, but the sun just came out. So I'm, I'm going to head out and go hiking now. Yeah. I love that. And I didn't ever get a chance yeah. to talk to you about animals and veganism and agriculture and everything like that. But um, thanks for all of that as well. Oh yeah. Well, Next time, hopefully we can have a, a conversation only about animal agriculture and veganism. Love yeah. to. Love to. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.